0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again in the book of Joshua. We uh, last hour covered Joshua 7, 8, and 9 for the Day 86 material. We are now arriving at the Day 87 material. Day 87, the Bible reading calendar covers from chapter basically chapter 10 and 11 and a little bit of overlap uh six verses into chapter 12 the title is successful conquest we're happy to read that as a title because uh while Jericho was successful Ai at first was a terrible defeat uh that was followed by a success once they uh, removed the idols from themselves and once they uh, became fully obedient to the Lord and if you missed that last hour I would encourage you to uh to get caught up on that And uh, the material there, I think, is pretty vital for our, our application. Moving on today, though, to chapters 10 and 11. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask our Father for His blessing on our time of study. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we come before You once again thankful for Your faithfulness, thankful for Your truth, Calling upon your faithfulness, Father, to to exercise your sovereign dominion over our thinking, over our speaking, over our listening, over everything that takes place here today, Father. Might everything be done for your good pleasure, for the glory of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And by the filling and power and control of God the Holy Spirit, Father, the way that you've designed us to operate, this is the way that we will proceed. So we thank you and we praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so moving beyond the initial battles of Jericho and i I've been mispronouncing Ai all these years. We're going to remedy that today by insisting upon the I pronunciation. Um, but moving past those battles, we again get uh, some summary statements that are given. And uh, so starting with chapter 10, chapter 10 is a summary statement of uh, Joshua's southern campaign. And you know something? Am I on the right page? Yes, I am. Okay. I was afraid I was going to misspeak. So we have the, uh, the five kings now that are going to be attacking. The capitulation of Gideon, of G- Gibeon, had a tremendous impact among the Amorite kings of the Judean highlands. And so this is what we deal with in verses one through five. We had seen an initial hint of this in the earlier chapter where these kings were gathered together and that was their preparation for the war. Now we're going to see that they launched their war here in this chapter. So it came about when Adonisadec, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had captured Ai and had utterly destroyed it, just as he had done to Jericho and its king, so he had done to Ai and its king. And that the inhabitants of Gibeon, or Gibeon, we'll get the uh, pronunciation here. All right, there you go. The inhabitants of Livyon, had made peace with Israel and were within their land, that he feared greatly because Livyon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than I, and all its men were mighty. And so really with these, with these conquests, uh, with, with Jericho and I being destroyed and with Livyon capitulating, Gibeon capitulating. Um, this then causes the tremendous fear. All the rest of these kings know that none of them are going to withstand the, uh, the invasion. None of them can, can have success against the invading army of Israel. Therefore, Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent word to Hoham, king of Hebron, and to Piram, king of Jarmuth, and to Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Debir, king of Eglon. All right, and I'm just gonna—I'm in a hurry. I'm not gonna stop and get pronunciations for all of these. Okay, so just—that's—it is what it is. Um, I'll be more careful with Shatim when we come back to that. The—we're um, well, just gonna go with a Texas pronunciation here for today. So that's why we have Hoham, king of Hebron. All right, um, they all come together. These are the uh, Amorite kings of the Judean highlands. They are all related. They're part of the same Amorite clans. Really, not not, uh, too distant from Sihon and Og that were defeated on the eastern side of the Jordan River. Anyway, so they all get together come to me and help me and let us attack Gibeon. For he has made, or for it has made, a peace with Joshua and with the sons of Israel. So the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the, the king of Eglon, gathered together and they went up with, our, with their armies and camped by Gibeon and fought against it. Remember, this is the way Satan works. This is the way this fallen world works. And uh, they, they can't fight against Israel, but they can get their revenge upon Gibeon for, uh, for what they did in capitulating. So the men of Gibeon sent word to Joshua to the camp of Gilgal saying we need your help. Right? Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. Now, there's, there's more impact of this rash vow that they took of the, of the covenant that they signed and the agreement that they made with the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites are their slaves. Under the law, they are responsible for how their slaves are treated. They are responsible to protect their slaves, to feed their slaves, to provide for their slaves, to not bring their slaves to harm. They had promised to let these people live. And now if they allow the, the five Amorite kings to slaughter them, then that would be would you think that would be a good way to get around their vow? Uh, no, the God of, of truth is going to hold them to their vow and say, you're using uh, this other hand to do your dirty work and, and God doesn't let that go. So they have to come to the defense of, they have a treaty obligation to come to the defense there. Similar to how we have a treaty obligation to come to the defense of NATO nations if a NATO nation is attacked. And uh, when, you're, when you're bound by these covenants, by these treaties, uh, it can be it can be an issue for your nation to deal with, as it is here. They have to defend Gibeon. This may not have been high on their agenda. They, who knows where Joshua intended to go after, after Ai, probably Bethel. But whatever the case is, now he's got this other circumstance thrust upon him. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the valiant warriors, Notice they're going together as a group, everybody, not just a small detachment, not just trying to get a human estimate based upon the bare minimum that they need to, to get the job done, right? And, and that, that, that's a whole sermon right there. Let's just preach on that. On uh, not getting, you know, making do with a bare minimum to get the job done. That, that doesn't glorify Jesus Christ. We're to, to love Him with our, all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Anyway, take the whole army with you. And uh, the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them. I have given them into your hands. Not one of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly by marching all night from Gilgal. And and this is just a monster victory. Let me make sure before I get too far into this that I don't lose my notes here. Um, Remember Melchizedek from Genesis chapter 14? He was um, another Zedek king of this locality. Same locality, Jerusalem. Uh, this is uh, quite a contrast, though. The the Adonai instead of the Mel, uh, or the Milky. Uh, but nevertheless, the, the, the root of this, my Lord, is uh, righteous. Okay? That's Adonizedek. Or uh, the king of righteousness was the name of Melchizedek. Anyway, it's quite a contrast. Um, and, and obviously, Jerusalem went downhill uh, after the death of, of Melchizedek, clearly. The, the years in between Melchizedek and Adonizedek have apparently only gone in the downhill direction. So Jerusalem, Hebron, uh, Jarmuth, Lakish, aglon they choose to join forces and fight. And they, they're going to fight in the field. And they're going to start with Israel's new slaves, with Gibeon as their first strike. The five Amorite kings choose to begin their military campaign with a punitive strike against Gibeon. And so that really is going to draw, actually accomplish two things. It's going to get their revenge on the Gibeonites. Uh, Also it's going to draw Israel to a fight on their uh, ground of their choosing. So they they want this battle to take place in the region of of Gibeon, not uh, somewhere else that it might be a problem. Who was the Civil War general that said, get there the fastest with the mostest. I'm trying to remember now. I think it was Jeb Stewart or one of those guys. Anyway, they're following this tactic. Get there and pick the ground you want to fight on. So, um, Joshua is now stuck. Having made a covenant with Gibeon, Joshua is obligated to protect Gibeon. When you enter into a covenant relationship, there's duties assigned with that, right? And uh, this is the issue here. So an all-night force march positions his armies in place to attack the Amorites. So this is what happens here. The Lord said, do not fear them. I've given them into your hands. Not one of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly by marching all night from Gilgal. And you look at the map and you look at the distances involved and you think, wow, this is a march. Okay, pull up Gilgal, the place, look at it on the atlas. And you all can do this with your logo software. Select the place, look at it on the atlas. We knew where Gilgal was anyway because it was in the neighborhood of, of Jericho. And then you track it from there to Gibeon. You track it from there to Gibeon. I think that map will have a good route of march and the, the different things there. So yeah, there's Gibeon north of uh, north of Jerusalem. Alright. So marched all night from Gilgal, and the Lord confounded them before Israel, and slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, and pursued them. So you might think, uh, maybe, maybe Joshua's gonna be tired. Maybe the army, I mean, they marched all night. Are they really gonna be ready to fight a, fight a pitched battle against five kings, five armies, uh, when they get there? Okay. Well, it helps when God's on your side, and He already leads the way with the, with the advanced forces, and, and leads the way with the, uh, the battle before you even arrive. So the Lord confounded them before Israel. He, that's the Lord, Yahweh, slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon and pursued them by the way of the ascent of Beth-horon and struck them as far as Ezekiah and Makedah. Makedah. As they fled from before Israel, while they were at the descent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah and they died. Okay? I think I call this an artillery barrage in the notes. I mean, you just think about it. When you're God and you've got power of, of meteors and the power of, of hail and, and, you know, these huge stones, I don't know how, how large is large, right? But just imagine, you know, these, these massive stones being thrown down. They died from the. uh, There were uh, more who died from the hailstones than those whom the sons of Israel killed with the sword. So this all-night forced march positions his armies in place to attack the the Amorites. The Amorites Israel's assault was a smashing success, as the Lord did not did most of the work himself through his own artillery. Joshua realized that additional daylight hours would be needed to complete the destruction of the routed armies. I mean, you have the smashing success, and then the problem is, is now the sun's starting to go down, and there's still more of the enemy to kill, and you just need more time. If the day could just be a little bit longer, if you could stretch it out. Who here has not wished to have more hours in their day for accomplishing something at one point of time, right? We all have. But Joshua goes so far as to actually demand that that's what he needs, and he gets it. He he doesn't make a request. He he barks the orders. He tells God what to do. So Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, O son, stand still at Gibeon. I mean, he's just saying this in front of everybody. You understand the pressure? I mean, pressure for Joshua? Or is it just total ultimate faith? Because there's no pressure for God. You know, God, God knew what he was going to say and, and he was prepared to do it. O sun, stand still at Gibeon. O moon in the valley of Aijalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation avenged themselves of their enemies. They had to finish the, what we call the mop-up operation when you're hunting down all the, 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 the remnants, the stragglers that are running here, there, and everywhere. Like, you know, cockroaches running when the lights turn on and they scatter in all the directions that they go. I don't know what I used for illustrations before I moved to Texas and learned what cockroaches are. We must have had other illustrations in Washington State growing up. All right, so the nation avenged themselves. The sun stood still. Okay? Do I believe this actually happened? Of course. I believe everything the Bible tells me about. Okay? This is probably the most powerful miracle that's recorded anywhere in the Scriptures. Is this involved? And when you're talking the sun, are we talking about the sun? Are we talking about the, the earth? Did it stop spinning? Did it stop its revolutions around the, the, uh, the sun? What did it do? I want to know the physics of this. Of course, it's not a physics book, so God doesn't tell us. He just tells us what happened. And he's the one that did it. And there was no day like that day, before it or after it, when the Lord listened to the voice of a man. Say, it's not a request. He barked an order. He gave a military command as the commander-in-chief of the armies of Israel. And the Lord God of hosts, the captain of the armies, we were introduced to him in an earlier chapter, the captain of the armies said, yes, sir, and he executed his, his instructions accordingly. The Lord listened to the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua and all Israel with him returned to the camp to Gilgal. All right. So imagine an all-night march, an all-day battle, an extra-long day battle, because the day was longer than any other day there's ever been. And then they've got to march back to Gilgal. How long does that take? Probably all night again. Okay. And uh, so, yeah, they're going to be ready for uh, some relaxation. Yes. Joshua realized the additional daylight hours would be needed to complete the destruction. So he issued a command, and the Lord executed Joshua's order with an immediate and omnipotent response. How awesome is that? And we better start to realize when we go to the Lord in prayer, what kind of power is available to us? What kind of confidence do we have in our own prayer life? Are we in a position? And you say, oh, no, 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 we would never be, we would never, ever presume to be in a position. We wouldn't claim. Well, wait a minute. Stop and consider the position of the bride of Christ in Christ, seated at the right hand of the Father's throne. Consider the contrast between our position and Joshua's position or any Old Testament believer priest. Consider our priesthood and the Melchizedek priesthood in Christ and and what we have available to us. We can throw mountains into the sea, Jesus said, if we ask. Anyway, more on that. Future studies. The sun stood still. Perhaps the greatest miracle recorded in the Bible As God brought the revolution and rotation of the earth to a halt, (laughs) scientific treatment of this miracle has been written on extensively. My favorite is uh, written by a man from my childhood church, actually, Donald W. Patton. Um, The Long Day of Joshua and Six Other Catastrophes. Good luck finding that in print today. It has been out of print for 40 years. Uh, But it was first published in 1973 by the Pacific Meridian Publishing Company. Good luck finding that today. They've been out of business for many years. Um, but again, Donald W. Patton was uh, was a man from my childhood church. He wrote uh, uh, other books on the flood, um, just different things. Anything he ever wrote, I, uh, I've, I've always enjoyed. I don't believe I personally met him because I was four years old when he wrote this, and uh, and uh, but we were in the same church together. Does that count? All right. Also, uh, Velikovsky. Anybody read Emmanuel Velikovsky? Just raise your hand and show me you're a heretic. I enjoy Immanuel Velikovsky, all right? Not God-breathed, not inspired. He was an unbelieving Jew. Uh, He died and went to hell. He rejected Jesus as his Christ. Um, But he was a brilliant polymath. He was an unbelievable scholar. And uh, his book, Worlds in Collision, was what Einstein was reading when he died. It was laid open on his desk when they found uh, that Einstein had passed away. Anyway, um, ancient history comparisons to Joshua's longest day in secular records are detailed in Worlds in Collision. I do recommend it. He does document his sources. He taught himself all these languages. He found, by the way, in the Western Hemisphere, the Aztecs and Incas and the Popu- they had uh, legends of this extra long night. For some reason, why did the light? Why did the night last so long? And why was the the morning delayed? And they had no idea. Of course, they're just pagans in the Western Hemisphere. They don't know but they had a record of this extra long night and just wondered if maybe they had forsaken their gods or somebody was mad at them. It had nothing to do with them. It was the commanding general over in, in Gibeon that needed extra daylight for his combat operations. And it's, uh, anyway, it's kind of interesting. This miracle is recorded in the Bible and in secular histories of the time, Joshua ten thirteen. Is it not written in the book of Jashar? And the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. So how long did that last? Um, Written in the book of Jashar, we've discussed this before. Uh, We talked about all of the uh, non-biblical, non-canonical, that's not God-breathed and inspired, does not belong in the Bible, but they are secular texts that are contemporaneous with the writing of the Old Testament. And it puts to the lie all the liberals that say, oh, they weren't literate, or oh, they didn't have an alphabetic script, or oh, they were still using some, uh, some glyphs or some non-alphabetical script. And this weekend has disproven that. This weekend, the, the announcement was made about the, uh, the archaeological findings in, uh, Mount Ebal, where they have the curse tablets that they've located using an alphabetic script. Okay? And it's just fun to see history unfold right before us. And this very weekend that we're going through Joshua chapter 8, the uh, testimony of Joshua 8 is, uh, is in the news. Anyway, the book of Jashar. If you want more on that, uh, where would you find it? Where would you find it? Well, I tell you, there is a new feature now at ttb.com that Christine just put into place. So when you're looking at the reading plan... And it doesn't matter whatever day you happen to be on. We don't have to go to today. So I won't. I'm not going to worry about it today. We're just going to go to any day in the reading plan. Let's say you've fallen terribly behind and you're on day 60. Um, Whatever the case, if you're looking for something, if you're looking for this book of Jashar, and you're wondering when was that mentioned, we now have a search button uh, in the... um, on the website, on the ttb2022.com website. So you put in your term, search, oh, look at that, it's on day 66. So you fell too far behind, just get caught up. And on day 66, of course you can watch the video, go through the chapters, numbers 19 through 21, and then all the notes are there, including the notes that mention the book of Jashar. Okay, so you'll have the chance to to review that and find the notes there. There are a lot of books A lot of secular books. The book of Jashar, the book of Samuel, the chronicles of King David, the Acts of Solomon, the collective writings of Solomon. All of these non-canonical books that were contemporaneous with the writing of the Old Testament. And it really demonstrates how literate this people group was. They came out of Egypt as a nation. They went down as a family. They came out as a nation. And they came out as a literate nation in in every way. So wanted to highlight that. The five Amorite kings were located and imprisoned until the military action could be completed against their armies. And so he gets the victory. They return to the camp at Gilgal. Now, these five kings had fled and hidden themselves in the cave at Makeda. 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 Again, select the Hebrew lemma, click on pronounce. Makeda. All right. And it was told Joshua saying the five kings have been found hidden in the cave of Makedah. So Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and assign men by it to guard them. But do not say, stay there yourselves, pursue your enemies and attack them in the rear. Do not allow them to enter their cities for the Lord your God has delivered them into your hand. And so he just, he has an order of precedence and and clear instructions for how to conduct these uh, mopping up operations. And so uh, when Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished slaying them with a the very great slaughter until they were destroyed and the survivors who re- remained of them had fled into the fortified cities, then all the people then returned to camp at Joshua at Makeda in peace. No one uttered a word against any of the sons of Israel. So now it's time to open the cave, to put them to death and uh, the massacre that happens here. Now keep in mind, this is on the orders of God. This is not Modern warfare, this is not the laws of war that our nation has subscribed to and signing of the Geneva Conventions and all of the things that we're the only ones that pay attention to it anyway. But um, in, in terms of when you capture a prisoner, we don't execute uh, prisoners that we capture. That is our policy, that is our military. I was a military police and we took prisoners. We did not execute our prisoners. That wasn't our function. That Any prisoners of war have to be treated according to the the, uh, laws of war, according to the Geneva protocols, and and, uh, and all the rest. This is ancient Israel. This is ancient warfare. They're going to execute these kings, okay? Just tell you now. So um, the remainder of the chapter details Joshua's southern campaign. So let's first of all talk about the execution of these kings, verses 16 through 27. The five Amorite kings were located and imprisoned until the action could be completed. Then they get uh, released and executed. All right. So yes, open the mouth of the cave, bring out these five kings. They did so, brought these five kings out to him from the cave. The king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon. Just in case you forgot which kings these are. okay. You're going to get this repeated again. When they brought these kings out to Joshua, Joshua called for all the men of Israel who said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. So they came near and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua then said, do not fear or be dismayed, be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies with whom you fight. He's going to take the time to actually teach and reinforce the doctrine as it relates to their uh, spiritual obedience to Yahweh, to the Lord. So they're going to have to listen to that message with their feet on the necks of these kings. So afterward, Joshua struck them, put them to death. He hanged them on five trees and they hung on the trees until evening. But of course, at sunset, get the bodies off the, off the tree before the sun goes down. Joshua gave a command. They took them down from the trees, threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves, put large stones over the mouth of the cave to this very day. That monument is still there at the point of time where the book of Joshua is written. I don't know if they gave tours, if they had, you know, if they put a sign out there, it became a tourist attraction. There's a lot of things in Israel that are tourist attractions with signs that are posted there and uh, so forth. Joshua captured Makeda on that day, struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He utterly destroyed it. Every person who was in it, he left no survivor. Thus he did to the king of Makeda, just as he had done to the king of Jericho. So when we get to verses 28 and following down to the end of the chapter... We have the details now of what's known as the Southern Campaign. And you start to plot these on the map and you'll notice that they entered from the east. They, they hit AI or Jericho, then AI, then Gibeon. Now they're going to start to, to work in the Southern region. Later on, they'll go and they'll work in the Northern region. And this is, uh, again, part of the design as, uh, as God was leading them in this, uh, in this endeavor. The second city is L- Livna. Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Makeda to Levnah and fought against Levna. The Lord gave it also with its king into the hands of Israel. See, I hope as we read through this, we're not left with the impression that, oh, Joshua was awesome, he couldn't lose, he was a great general, He was he was obedient. He was going where the Lord took him, and the Lord was giving the victories. The Lord was providing for the victories. The Lord gave it, along with its king, into the hands of Israel. He struck it, and every person who was in it with the edge of the sword, he left no survivor in it. Thus he did to its king, just as he had done to the, kings of Jer- to the king of Jericho. And, and if this seems redundant, the Holy Spirit put it in here for a reason. We're supposed to read it city by city, detail by detail, to see it unpl- uh, f- unfold the way that it did. And I think it's vital. we gotta, we got to learn these lessons for the battles that we're facing for the struggles we're going through. Just stay faithful, stay obedient, and watch what the Lord delivers. Watch the victories He provides. So Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Libna to Lachish and they camped by it and fought against it. And the Lord gave Lachish into his hands of Israel and he captured it on the second day and struck it and every person who was in it with the edge of the sword according to all that he had done to Libna. Now why did Lachish take two days? What was the delay there? We don't have those kind of details but it is curious. We do have the reference there. Then Horm, king of Gezer came up to help Lachish yeah, I love Gieser. It's My favorite town in the whole Old Testament. The inhabitants of which were known as Geezers, right? And uh, they they could fight. Those geezers could fight. So uh, Horm, king of Gezer, came up to help Lachish and Joshua defeated him and his people until he had left him no survivor. And Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Lachish to Eglon. They camped against it, fought against it. They captured it on that day and struck it with the edge of the sword and he utterly destroyed that day every person who was in it according to all that he had done in Laish. So all I can suspect is, if I have to speculate and try to put these details together, I, my only suspicion is is that when the geezers came out it delayed the conquest of Lakish by a day. It took an extra day, a second day to, to finish mopping up Lakish because of the, the geezers that had come out and, and delayed things. Then uh, Joshua and all Israel with him went up from Eglon to Hebron and they fought against it. Now this is one that's going to have additional stories connected to it. We actually have uh, multiple narratives describing the defeat of Hebron. And some of them are more spectacular than others. And we don't view them as being contradictory. We don't view them as being somehow uh, uh, as if they give indications of different authors or different sources or any of that. The liberals get crazy with that stuff. But it does recognize that in the Hebrew writing, they will give the details that are pertinent to that context, and it doesn't bother them at all to leave details completely out. until they want to revisit that topic on another occasion, in which case they give those additional details the next time around. It does not bug them at all. It bugs us to pieces. We just have to get over it. Okay? We just have to put ourselves back in that era and uh, that mindset. So we have A, B, C, D from those down to Eglon, and then we get to Hebron. Now, again, the details that are here that are recorded in chapter 10, verses 36 and 37, did I read all those yet? So he went to Hebron, fought against it, captured it, struck it, its king, all its cities and all the persons who were in it with the edge of the sword. He left no survivor according to all that he had done to Eglon. He utterly destroyed it and every person who was in it. Okay, so that's, the, that's, that's it. It's a short description. We will get more when we turn to chapter 11. There will be more which we'll hit today actually because we've got 11 coming up and we'll cross a few verses into chapter 12. A Caleb distinguishes himself in this battle. Now Caleb is not mentioned in these verses. We will see him mentioned in, in upcoming contexts, But he does distinguish himself and we learn about it in chapter 14 and in chapter 15. So this Hebron testimony comes up repeatedly chapter 10 chapter 11 chapter 14 chapter 15 also into the book of judges the story gets told again in the book of judges about the great hero caleb and his his role in this battle so stay tuned i guess i'll save some time we won't look at those quite yet and we won't look at these until after lunch those will come up this afternoon then we have Deborah, debir debbie No, not Debbie, I'm sorry. We have Pronunciation of The Beer. Okay, there we go. Joshua and all Israel with him returned to Devere and they fought against it. He captured it and its king and all its cities and they struck them with the edge of the sword. So keep in mind, every one of these cities that's mentioned could have daughter cities, could have villages, could have smaller towns that are in a, in a region around there that support that large capital city, that walled headquarters, you know. And sometimes it's awkward for us to think about a king of Jerusalem. Well, Jerusalem's a city. Shouldn't it have a mayor? Why does Jerusalem have a king? Well, because that's what they had back then, city-states. They had small kingdoms that were really, you know, counties really. They were the one dominant city with smaller towns and villages. Um, if, if you had multiple cities, that was kind of unusual in this, uh, in this era. Anyway, captured Dever and its king and all its cities, struck them with the edge of the sword, utterly destroyed every person who was in it. He left no survivor, just as he had done to Hebron, so he did to Dever and its king, as he had done to Libna and its king. So there's the the cities there. There are other various locations in the Negev. That's the southern regions there. Negev, footnote, the south country. Thus Joshua struck all the land, the hill country, and the Negev, and the lowland, and the slopes, and all their kings. He left no survivor, but he utterly destroyed all who breathed, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded. Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea, even as far as Gaza, and all the country of Goshen, even as far as Gibeon. If it breathes, it died. That was the command. Okay. And this is again different. The ancient world is different than our modern uh sensitivities, whereby we have uh we, we draw distinctions between combatants and non combatants, that we, we strive to kill the soldiers and the sailors and the military personnel, and we deliberately don't target the women and the children and the non combatants and the civilian population. We have this um concept that that wars are fought military versus military and civilians are off limits. says who? Who made that up? Did, is that in the Bible? Or is that something that in the modern world they put into place? And, and how did that come about? Why did that come about? And once it did come about why were we the only ones following it? <laughs> why did our enemies feel no compunction against uh, attacking women and children and civilians and, and all the rest? Anyway. More on that. So keep these things in mind. Understand what the ancient world standard was. Understand what the biblical standard was and will be again. Because the standards of war that we see in the Old Testament, they do return in at Armageddon. They do return when Jesus Christ conquers. And when Jesus Christ establishes His millennial kingdom, He will be executing every unbeliever from the face of planet Earth. Only born-again believers will will survive the tribulation and enter into the, the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. So these various locations in the Negev that are, that are mentioned there. From Kadesh Barnea, even as far as Gaza, and all the country of Goshen, even as far as Gibeon, Joshua conquered all these kings and their lands at one time because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. So Joshua and all Israel with him returned to the camp at Gilgal. And it's the same thing we're going to learn in the days of David. And the victories don't come because David was so awesome. They come because the Lord is with David in all of David's battles. The Lord is with Joshua in all of Joshua's battles. And we, uh, we have that spelled out for us here. All right, now it's time for the northern campaign, chapter 11. Chapter 11 is a summary of Joshua's northern campaign. And if you want more details, like how many days is this taking? How many weeks? How many months? What's the, what are the seasons like now? We, we don't get that in these chapters. We're not getting the, the level of detail that maybe some of us might want. But in the north, it's time to try for another alliance, just like they had five kings in the south. Now we have King Jibin, Jabin, king of, or Yavin, king of Hazor, Hazor, which I think is the word for donkey. So that tells you something about that king Um, or the people that he reigns over, I guess, if he's the, he's the donkey king. Jabin, the king of Hazor, assembled an alliance greater than uh alliance. So it's bigger even than what we saw earlier. They numbered as the sand on the seashore with infantry, cavalry, and armor divisions. Let's look at these first four verses here. So it came about when Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of it. He sent to Jobab, king of Madon, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Akshaf, and to the kings who were in, in the north, in the hill country, in the Arabah, the Arabah is the is the valley that the Jordan flows through. It's the the cleft that just sinks down. In the Arabah, south of Chinneroth, otherwise known as the Sea of Galilee, by the time you get to Jesus' day, and the lowlands and the heights of Dor on the west to the Canaanite on the east and on the west and the Amorite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Jebusite and the hill country and the Hivite at the foot of Hermon in the land of Mizpah. You remember when uh Adonizedek was putting his alliance together, his was essentially all one people group. It was all essentially the the Amorites and his fellow uh, kinsmen in, in that one Canaanite people group. This appears to be all hands on deck, all the people groups, all of the, the ites, if you will. Amorite, Hittite, Perizzite, Jebusite in the hill country, in the Hivite, in the foot of Hermon, in the land of Mizpah. And they came out, they and all their armies with them, as many peoples as the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. So that's where I got the infantry and cavalry and uh, armored divisions. So all the kings having agreed to meet came and encamped together at the waters of Marum to fight against Israel. So they have to have an assembly place. They have a rally point. They have the place where they assemble together and all the order of battle is established and that's the, the launching uh, pad for their, for their frontal assault. Uh, this is in uh, Marum. Uh, of course the more famous one is, is Armageddon that we get into with the second advent and the battles that are fought in the coming tribulation. All right, but essentially the same. That northern region, that that great valley of Jezreel, that comes from the Mediterranean coast on the west, and and crosses basically bisects the whole land of Israel all the way to the Jordan River Valley on the east, and uh, tremendous uh, territory for uh, for military engagements, always has been, and I won't say always will be, because Armageddon's going to be the end of that. No more war after that. How arrogant of us to name a war, the war to end all wars, when Scripture tells us that it's when Jesus Christ has his victory at Armageddon, that uh, it's only then that they plow their uh, swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks and they will never again learn, learn war. Military science itself is extinguished. Alright, so we have this invasion. Josephus estimated their combined strength as 300,000 infantry soldiers, 10,000 cavalry troops, and 20,000 chariots. His numbers are suspect in addition to the fact that uh, his numbers um, are based upon the the problematic uh, numbers in the the Hebrew Bible for the book of Numbers. So we talked about that when we were introducing Numbers chapter 1. Again, if he's coming with 300,000 troops, I thought Israel had 600,000 troops. Don't they still outnumber them two to one? Again, more work to be done on that. So in obedience to the command of the Lord, Joshua refused to fear and he advanced by faith. The Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid. You know, how do you obey that? <laughs> it's, it's a negative command. He says, don't. He says, okay, I'm not. All right. But he has to affirm that and he has to go forth into the battle. You know. Some of the negative commands are easier to obey than others. Like thou shalt not murder. I've, I've fulfilled that in my whole life. Okay? I'm on a streak now. I'm not murdering anybody. But then there's other commands that are a little bit harder. And then how do you know that you've been afraid, that you've obeyed this command to do not fear, do not be afraid? Well, he declares his faith and proceeds forward to, to the battles that God has assigned to him. Tomorrow at this time I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all the people of war with him came upon them suddenly by the waters of Merom and attacked them. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel so that they defeated them and pursued them as far as great Sidon and Mizraphoth Meam in the valley of Mizpah to the east. And they struck them until no survivor was left among them. And Joshua did to them as the Lord had told them. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire." And this is significant too. They're not going to have a military that's going to be like the military of the nations around them. They're not going to try to keep a, keep a, an a, uh, inventory of chariots. Or they're not going to try to keep stables of horses. They're not going to try to maintain military forces that might v- start to view themselves as somehow peers of Egypt or peers of uh, the Philistines or somehow comparable saying, you know, we can match your chariots with our... They're not doing any of that go ahead and hamstring the horses, go ahead and destroy the chariots. You don't need them. Yahweh fights for you. And so essentially these infantry divisions we've been studying, they're called men of the foot, okay? In, uh, in the, the muster that we looked at in Numbers chapter 1 and Numbers 26. So um, they go forth in faith and they have the victories. With the Northern Alliance defeated at Murom, the northern cities fall in due time. Now it's time to just go around and start hitting these cities because their uh, their standing armies are, are now dead. And we have the mop-up operations here. In some cases, when you do the, the advance work appropriately, then the, the mopping up operations are pretty simple. In, uh, in the warfare that I took part in, in, in Desert Shield, and then Desert Storm in 1991, the um, the air force spent 30 days just bombing the Iraqis to smithereens, and and by the time we moved across in February, by the time the ground forces moved across, you talk about a defeated foe. I mean, nobody had any fight in them. They were surrendering to reporters and surrendering to soldiers and surrendering to whoever, and 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 nobody you ever met even had any. They were all deaf. No one could hear anything. They'd all been not, you know bombed for 24 hours, and and. Uh, the deafness kind of helped because we didn't speak Arabic and they didn't speak English and different things there. So a defeated foe, and this is, this is what they're dealing with. So Joshua turned back at that time and captured uh, Hazor and struck its king with a sword, for Hazor formerly was the head of all these kingdoms. They struck every person who was in it with the edge of the sword. Now they've already destroyed the men, the armies, the military. What are they doing here? They're going to the women and the children, the old people. And and again, is God a moral monster? Is he ordering a genocide? Is this evil in the side of... We we have to answer this. We have to to just be straight up and tell the people that that think that we serve a moral God. We need to let them know, no, no, the the, the godless were these guys. God had given them 400 years to repent. The wickedness was these guys. And no one made them stay. Anyone was free to depart the land. Anyone that departed the, the land of Canaan, the land of promise, was free to go. Staying there was what signed their execution order. He burned Hazor with fire. This is something that Titus Kennedy has written on and and spoken about, the the archaeology of Hazor. Captured the other cities, all the cities of these kings, all their kings. He struck them with the edge of the sword, utterly destroyed them just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. However, Israel did not burn any cities that stood on their mounds, except Hezer alone, which Joshua burned. Most of the cities they're going to try to keep intact because they're going to live in those cities. They're going to to have pre-made houses and cities, and all of this is going to become their new residence as they move in. All the spoil of these cities and their cattle, the sons of Israel, took as plunder. But they struck every man with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them. They left no one who breathed just as the Lord had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So this was long commanded, long prepared, long uh, you know, through Moses to Joshua, now to the people, and uh, the chain of command is intact and the warfare is being uh, prosecuted. Alright, so the cities were plundered, Hazor was razed. The remainder of the chapter gives some summary statement information about the central, southern, and northern campaigns. This kind of ties together all the various regions, the central, southern, and northern campaigns in these summary statements. All right, so let's do 16 through 18, and then we'll see verses 19 and following. Joshua took all that land, the hill country, and all the the Negev, and all that land of Goshen, the lowland, the Arabah, the hill country of Israel, and its lowland from Mount Halak that rises toward Seir, even as far as Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon at the foot of Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings and struck them down and put them to death. Joshua waged war a long time with all these kings. So there's a passage of time that takes place for this. There was not a city which made peace with the sons of Israel, except the Hivites living in Gibeon. They took them all in battle. For it was of the Lord to harden their hearts to meet Israel in battle in order that he might utterly destroy them, that they might receive no mercy, but that he might destroy them just as the Lord had commanded Moses. You know, so once a nation indicates no mercy, once a nation says no quarter, once a nation says this is total war, well then, gloves are off. It's total war. And it's total war on both sides. Ultimately, World War II came down to that. Total war on both sides. They're bombing London, uh, so we're bombing Dresden. We're, it's all just carpet bond, bombing in the, in the uh, prosecution of these wars. All right. Now, we've got some statements that are made here. and I'm glad we've got some time for this. Uh, Joshua learned from the Gibeon mistake and never repeated it. Um, Joshua focused especially on giant extermination. That's the references here to the Anakim. And I'm going to talk about it here today, and then we're going to also deal with some upcoming classes as well. Who are these Anakim? So look at verses 21 and 22 here. Alright. So Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Devir, from Anab. From all the hill country of Judah and from all the hill country of Israel, Joshua utterly destroyed them with their cities and so, if there 's ever a rule of thumb as far as what cities get spared and what cities get get obliterated, uh, a huge determination there as well were they harboring Nephilim, were they harboring these giants? Is there a possibility that there are you know, fallen angelic genetics that are still surviving. We do we need to exterminate every everything that breathes in these in these locations? So um, we have the references there, and we hadn't seen up till now. We haven't seen the, these giants. We are going to see them. We're going to see three of them by name in uh, in Hebron that uh, that Caleb has to deal with. So there were no Anakim left in the land of the sons of Israel, only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod some remained. Do those names mean anything to you? Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod. Those are actually three out of the five Philistine cities. Three of the five Philistine cities that will still be Philistine cities in the days of Saul and in the days of David. And some of the Anakim that remain that are harbored in Gath would include Goliath, Goliath the Hittite. He was, or not the Hittite, Goliath from Gath, the giant from Gath. We have a little preview of coming attractions there when we're told that, uh, that there are still Anakim remnants, Anakim survivors that are in these Philistine locations. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to the to Israel according to their divisions by their tribes. Thus the land had rest from war. And this is kind of a again a curious way to end a chapter. It might be even a, a nice way to end a book. The book doesn't end here, but it's also an interesting statement that we can't just let sit there by itself. By itself, it's true. In this context, it's true that this this represents now the conclusion of the national military operations. That once they finish the national conquest, they will then move to a new phase whereby they're going to uh, begin to proceed to tribal conquests. That there will be smaller operations among the tribes that they have to pacify their own inherited territories, that they have to finish the, uh, the expulsion of the, the dispossession of the Canaanite peoples. So this is a great start. And so far, we haven't seen any failure since Ai. We have not seen any negative comment. We haven't seen any detrimental commentary on Joshua's performance since the defeat in chapter 7, the defeat at, at Ai. But there were. There were sins of omission. There were regions that were not conquered. There were regions that were not conquered by the national conquest because they were left for the tribal conquest to have their tribal obedience. And that's where many of the failures are going to take place. So uh, stay tuned for that. The land's rest for more lasted from the conclusion of Joshua's active conquest to the beginning of the tribe's settlement efforts. In other words, we've got the book of Joshua in our Bible for a reason, we have the book of Judges in our Bible for a reason. A reason. And the book of Judges starts with what the tribes had assigned to them after the death of Joshua. So stay tuned for that. It's not a happy ending. The book of, Joshua, the book of Judges is depressing. It's just absolutely, it's a record of failure after failure after failure. Um, you know, it's like mostly cloudy with glimpses of sunshine every six weeks or something. I mean, it's just, it's a book that has, from beginning to end, uh, the record of the faithlessness of Israel. And yet, God is faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And we find that he has covenant promises with all 12 of these tribes, despite their faithlessness every step of the way. Okay, so chapter 12 then. Six verses here. Chapter 12 is a historical review of Israel's military victories across the Jordan and within the land of Canaan. And uh, it'll begin in these first six verses with a, a re- recap of what they did before they crossed the River Jordan. The, uh, the two Amorite kings that they killed, uh, Sihon and Og. Are you tired of hearing those names yet? Okay. We, we've got some new ones coming up. We're going to see some, uh, some fun ones coming up, but uh, we'll, we'll stick with, with uh, Sihon and Og for now. But I'll tell you right now, Oreb and Zeb, they're just fun to say. And I don't care how the Hebrews pronounced it. I like Oreb and Zeb. So let's start here. These are the kings of the land whom the sons of Israel defeated and whose land they possessed beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise from the valley of the Arnon as far as Mount Hermon and all the Arabah to the east. And so it starts with the description of the kings that they conquered before they crossed the land. And again, the kings are defeated, they're killed, Israel is taking their land. They are dispossessed. So what does it mean to possess a land? What does it mean to own the land? This is all according to the biblical record. God is the one that has sovereign control over uh, their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Are you tired of hearing about that yet? Paul's sermon on Mars Hill, right? Acts 17. He made from one man every nation on the face of this earth. And God's sovereignly uh, controls their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. When it's time to end a people group's ownership of a land, that land is no longer theirs. And I think these things. We better, you know, we learn these things. We may not like them. Um, we have preferences. For example, <laughs> my preference: uh, the the land of Ukraine belongs to the Ukrainian people. But then again, God's the one who's sovereign, not me. And if his plan is for the Russian people to defeat the Ukrainian people and to, reta- and to take that land and to claim that land, won't be the first time. Okay? The Ukrainians have been under Russians repeatedly for many, many years. Okay? Not just the Soviet Union either, but going back to, to the Tsars and going back before that. For a time, they were under Poland. For a time, they were under Lithuania. For a time, they were under Hungary. For a time they were under uh, the, the, the Tartars. And, and the history of Ukraine is fascinating and complex. And, and you're going back to 1000 AD and, and older than that even. So there's a lot, of, a lot of things at work there. And if it turns out the way we like, great. If it turns out the way we don't like, can we still say great? Do we have to say, not my will, but thine be done? Do we have to say, to God be the glory? That if, uh, if a people group becomes stateless, if a people group loses their land, and if, if, um, you know, if Ukrainians become a displaced people and they live in uh, Europe or, or Canada or America or they scatter across the world and so forth um, into a diaspora, God's still in control. Okay, God's still in control. Anyway, not fun to think about, but God knows what He's doing. So we start with Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon and ruled from Arur, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, both in the middle of the valley and uh, half of Gilead, even as far as the brook and uh, the border of the sons of Ammon. So they had; they were an Amorite people. They were on the border with the Ammonites. And, uh, of course, we had that conquest that we've already dealt with. And the Arabah as far as the Sea of Kinaruf. Sea of Galilee, toward the east, and as far as the Sea of the Arabah, even the Salt Sea, uh, eastward toward Beth-Jeshemoth, and on the south at the foot of the slopes of Pisgah. Remember the mountain where Moses died? Sometimes it's called Nebo, sometimes it's called Pisgah. So there's King Sihon. There's also King Og. This was the tall guy with a huge bed. You know, we assume that, because he had this huge bed. But no, we were told he was the last of the remnant of the so it's more than an assumption. I think we got a textual basis. But wouldn't it be hilarious if we get to heaven and find out he was really a dwarf. He just liked to sleep in a huge bed. Who knows? You know, the Bible says he was the he was a, he was a Rephaim descendant. So the territory of Og, the king of Bashan, one of the remnant of the there it is, one of the remnant of the Rephaim. So he was not a dwarf. Who lived at the Asteroth and at Edrai? And he ruled over Mount Hermon and Salikah and Bashan as far as the border of the Geshurites and the Makathites and half of Gilead as far as the border of Sihon, the king of Heshbon. So his territories, we have these two side-by-side Amorite kingdoms and this tandem, this twin tandem of these kings being mentioned here. But Mount Hermon, a lot of spiritual connections there. I mention Bashan every time I read it. The cows of Bashan that were surrounding Jesus on the cross. Psalm 22, if you want to read that. Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the sons of Israel defeated them. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave it to the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh as a possession. All right, so this is where Ron Rhodes chose to end today's reading. We can't read verse 7 until after lunch. Alright, so this outline will continue. The chapter 12 continues tomorrow because that's part of the day 88 reading in our Bible reading calendar. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your faithfulness, for the privilege and blessing that we have to assemble together. I thank you, Father, for the big picture. And yes, it's fast. And yes, it's uh, overwhelming. It's a tremendous amount of material. And we're not going to teach this way next year, (laughs) Father. But for this year, This is the course that you've set before us, and we're just, we're loving it, Father. I'm having the time of my life. I thank you, Father, for the blessing we have to read the Bible seven days a week, to to preach your truth, to all be together in this program. And so, Father, as we study to show ourselves approved, I pray that we learn these lessons. I pray that we understand the day and age in which this took place, that we're not uh, overwhelmed by how different it is from the day and age in which we live. Father, we've got so much insanity and darkness and we got, um, we, we, Father, we are just lost. We have a culture that won't, won't even describe, won't, can't give a definition of what a woman is, Father. And here we are. Thank you for the word of God that lays it out. Male and female, he created them. And, and Father, we just take your word at its, at its, uh, at its promise because you are faithful. So Father, I thank you for the study. Thank you for this flock. We give you the praise and the glory, Father, in Jesus Christ's name, amen.